It is a privilege for sure to be here today, and so thank you for having me. As PJ said, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, we've had the privilege of knowing each other in different contexts. I'm glad he finished the sentence because it began like this. Thanks. It began like this. We met in a garage in Hollywood <laughs> for prayer. So it was good. It got good, right? Uh, but it was a little wonky in the beginning, so I'm glad he was able to finish that. It is my privilege to serve PJ and Francis and his family uh, and, and you as a church. And just know we also pray for you by name, that we pray for Bethany Baptist. And we'll message the pastors and ask, you know, how we can pray. And so every few weeks we get to pray for you as well. And so I'm going to pray now. I'm going to pray for our message. You know, we've prayed for it. We've sang about it. But I'm going to pray one more time. Will you join me in prayer? God, thank you for this opportunity. As we gather this morning, will you speak? My job is to fade into the back. And Lord, your job is to rise to the front. May your spirit come and use me in my weakness and my frailty and my incompetence. May you be strong. And for all our ears and all our hearts, may we hear your word. May we take today and may we hear something new. May we mature and grow in it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, would you turn to Psalm 119? I looked. And the page is 538 if you're borrowing, borrowing a Bible. I have the privilege of using the CSB, preaching from the CSB for the first time. I used the CSB, uh, especially over the summer, I spent some devotional time in Ezekiel using this. I like this translation a lot. And so I'm grateful actually to do that. A little bit of a challenge putting things together and seeing which words match up with the English Standard Version like I use and which ones don't. So... Psalm 119 is all about God's word. It is a psalm written about God's word. In fact, many of you may know this, but it was written in Hebrew as an acrostic. To, it was used by Hebrew families, Jewish families, to teach their children the alphabet and then teach them how to read. And all along, while they're teaching the alphabet and how to read, they're actually teaching them scripture. And so a really powerful resource is Psalm 119. It begins, or we encounter right away in the early verses, a blessing and a struggle. And so it opens up with these beautiful words, and then we encounter a struggle within it. And so I want to begin with that. Psalm 119, I'll start in verse 1. It says, How happy are those whose way is blameless who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. So Psalm 119 begins with the words happy, repeated. Other translations use blessed. And really this is called by many a beatitude, a blessing in the beginning of Psalm 119. The same Hebrew word, blessed, is, is the same, uh, 
happy here is the same word in Hebrew that Psalm 1 begins with that many of us know. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners. It's that same word. So when I hear happy, I, I think of a, a feeling maybe I, maybe I cause or create or experience. When I hear blessed, what I hear is something that God does for me or to me that I get to receive and enjoy. So happy or blessed, same way, this word can be translated both ways. The famous Greek equivalent is obviously in Matthew 5, where Jesus is speaking. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is a divine happiness or a divine blessing. This is not something that we create or we can manifest apart from God. This is something that God does in us and through us. So wherever you find yourself this morning, maybe you're here and you're poor in spirit, in desperate need of a Savior, well, let God's word be a blessing to you. Maybe you're here and you're mourning a loss. God's word is a comfort and life for you. Maybe you're here learning humility through repentance. That's been said in the prayers that we talked about. God's worth is both convicting and redeeming for you. And maybe you're hungering and thirsting for truth, for righteousness, for the true God. God's word is indeed satisfying and leads us to the truth. God's word is truth. I want to read verse 1 again. I want to start from there again. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. So again, divine happiness and blessing. This is not, this is not human happiness or human blessing. This is from God. Now it says, happy are those whose way is blameless. And, and when I read that, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, I'm not blameless. I'm full of blame. It says, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Well, I, I do some of that, right? I, I hit and miss for sure. I have my struggles. It says, happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. And really, immediately what I think is, how impossible is that? And so as the psalmist begins with a beatitude, a blessing, a happiness, a, a divine giving of joy and happiness for you and for me, what I also see here is a struggle. What I see is that struggle to walk in God's ways, to live fully for God, to seek fully what God commands me to do and to be. I feel like I could be excluded from this blessing based on not achieving what it says to do. And actually, in all reality, we're all disqualified. We all fail to meet what God gives us 
to do and to be. But see, that is the gospel. That is the beauty of the message, the good news that we, that we gather around. See, we know that the gospel is that God created you and loves you. If you're a guest here or maybe you have not been to church before, let me be the first in 2023 to tell you God loves you. That God created you, designed you, made you. That you were created with a purpose and a design. That you were created to not only receive God's love, but to return that love and be a worshiper of the true God. Now, when we at Generations Church talk about our, create, our, our design or our ontological purpose or our created way of living, we talk about that God created us to be worshipers. And that's not like when we sing songs or do that, but it's that our lives are called to bring glory to God. That as we live, as I live, as you live, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is the calling that you are created to, your life should, al should always be bringing glory to God. But we, we know that that's not true. We know that we fail to meet that. We know that we sin. In fact, I'm going to say this, if you are not a follower of Jesus today, you need to hear this, that, that we as followers of Jesus are not perfect, and we don't think we're perfect. In fact, we should know more about how imperfect we are. That we should have a clearer understanding of how sinful and broken we are. So when people say, oh, Christians, they're hypocrites, that may indeed be true. But we know we're broken. We know we fail to achieve the perfect metric of living for God, that, that perfect metric that we see in Jesus. And so sin enters into human history and, and breaks humanity. It breaks our design. It breaks who we are. The image of God inside of us shatters. And then sin is passed on from parent to child to the next generation to the next generation. And here we are thousands of years later, after everyone before us has sinned and broken the world, and then we join in and we sin and, and we add to the brokenness in the world. And here we are adding sin to sin. But see, the good news of the gospel, it's not this, well, this metric is higher, that the, the calling is perfect, that, that you're always to bring glory to God, that you can work your way there, but you cannot. I can't. None of us can because we're born broken. We're born in that sin. We're born incapable of achieving what God calls us to. The good news, we just spent a week ago, just spent that time celebrating how Christ became flesh, how God became incarnate flesh, that the eternal creator Jesus who was there in the beginning with, with the Father and, and who is co-creator and co-eternal, is co-equal with God, a part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that, that that Son became flesh. We spent this year at Generations Church emphasizing, reminding ourselves that Jesus wasn't just born 2,000 years ago like he began there, but that Jesus is eternal God who then lowered himself, condescended himself to human flesh for us. 
so that he could be born in flesh, that he could live the life that you and I are called to live, that we fail to live, that we choose to fail to live. Right, Christians? We choose even to fail. But Jesus lived a life of glorifying God, that he lived a sinless life, a perfect life in human flesh. And then Jesus gave himself on the cross for us. He substituted his perfect life, fully human and yet fully divine. And he he substituted, he traded himself on a cross. Literally, the image of Jesus on the cross is our mediator. Literally hanging between a holy God and a sinful humanity. Jesus took our sin. He was laid in a grave I'll never be able to fathom how the creator and author of life dies, is laid in a grave. But the story doesn't stop there. Of course, the resurrection, three days later, Jesus raises from the dead. Having victory over Satan and sin and death, Jesus resurrects to life. And it's in that resurrection that he gives us new life. Just as Jesus taught You must be born again. He gives us that new life. He empowers us to live for him as he ascends back to heaven. He fulfills his promise to send another helper. The very Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and in me if you're in Christ. See, Ezekiel 36, way back in the the prophets in the Old Testament, they spoke of this same thing. Ezekiel writes it like this. He says, speaking for God, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So one of the few places where the word flesh in scripture is used as a good thing. It's often tied to our sinfulness. But here's what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I'll take your heart of stone. Your heart does not beat for me. And I'll take it out of you. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a heart that can beat for me, God says. And I will give you my spirit. And he doesn't stop there. And he says, I will cause you to follow my statutes and obey my commands. I will cause you to, not just give you the ability, but I will cause you to be obedient. It's in that that we understand this beatitude. Happy are those who walk or whose way is blameless. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You see, this beatitude is not only a blessing. It's not only this blessing or good news or happiness or joy, but it's also something that we walk in. It's something that we do. It's not just what we know, but it's what we live in. So Psalm 119, all about Scripture, begins with both a blessing and a struggle. And then it continues, verse 4. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. God, you have commanded that your precepts, precepts are God's guidelines for behavior. So you have commanded that your precepts 
be diligently kept, that we strive daily to do what God has called us to do, that we surrender our lives, that we lay down our desires for Christ, that we lay our life down and that we strive, we diligently pursue obedience to God. The call to humanity has never changed. Though it has been failed by every human being, save the exception of Christ, the call has never changed that we live in what God has commanded. Verse 5, the psalmist says this, he says, if only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. Statutes would be God's laws. But listen to the tone change in the psalmist from the blessing and the command of God to if only my ways were committed to obedience, right? Then I would not be ashamed when I'm in front of you, when, I, when I'm confessing, when I, when I see your law and I see that I don't measure up. If only... I struggle to do what you've called me to do, God. I, I'm, I'm incapable of meeting your command, he says. If only I could. The apostle Paul, when writing to the church in Rome, says it this way. It's in chapter 7. He says, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. The Apostle Paul says, I struggle here. I strive to do the things that God calls me to do, but I find myself doing the wrong, the evil, the sin I don't want to do. He says, I live in this tension of striving towards God, and yet I find myself falling short constantly. Five verses later, Paul says this, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, well, what can rescue me? Well, thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. That we have hope, that we may struggle, but we have hope. We have a Savior who has met the mark, who has achieved fully what it takes to live and glorify God. And it is our Savior who pours out his spirit into us to help us, to aid us, to cause us to live for him. So the psalmist is saying, here's the blessing. Here's the calling. I strive to meet it. If only I could meet it, he says. Listen to the pivot here, to the transition. Verse 7, the psalmist says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. So how do we get from verse 5, if only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, to verse 7 where it says, I will praise you, I will keep your statutes. He says, when I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. If you're a note taker, let me say this to you. Worship and obedience require knowledge and understanding of God's word. Worship and obedience require knowledge and understanding of God's word. There are many today, they are all around us, 
that are doing the things they say are what pleases God. Not what scripture says, not what BBC says, not what Generation says, but what they think. They're living a life that they want to live, and they're, they're shaping or conforming God to their life. It's all around us. It's saturated in our churches. But see, when we learn God's word, then we are told. When we learn and we understand, we can worship and obey. God's word orients us to him. So many people living so many lives, so disconnected from scripture and truth. Proclaiming their faith, proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus, but lives that don't look like scripture calls us to look. That scripture orients us, that scripture is that center that says, okay, this is what God is calling us to. Right, it's that high bar of living as God has called us to, but it is that safe place to land when we miss, called grace. But it calls us to what God desires from us. Verse 9 says this, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. It's funny, let's just face it, young men have a propensity for not keeping their way pure. Right now, young women do, and older men do, and older women do. We know that. But I love that the psalmist just says, listen, okay, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can those who are targeted the most by culture, at least in our day, those who are targeted most to be the least, it calls them up to the least. How can they keep their way pure? Well, by keeping your word, the psalmist says, by knowing, learning, keeping, adhering to your word, by allowing scripture to shape and focus us on how to live for Christ, by keeping your word. I, I struggled in putting this passage together. There was a direction going this way and there was a direction going this way. And, and I, I chose a way, but I, I just, inside of me, there was this other direction and I'll just give you a little bit of it. Two, three weeks ago in our Advent message at Generations leading up to Christmas, I taught from John chapter 1. You guys are familiar with this. You've probably heard this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning. He created all things. There was nothing that was created apart from him. And then you get down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is the very word of God. That the voice, when God speaks, that was Christ. And we see that in creation in the beginning, God, verse 1. Verse 2, and the spirit hovered over the waters. Verse 3, and God said, and we see God speak. That's Jesus. And so when we look at this, when we see the written word, we understand that it's been spoken to the author, inspired to the author. Some things, like Ezekiel's words, are direct communication. Some are simple inspiration by God. When I say simple, it's not simple. But some are the inspired words of an author, a, a poet, a singer, a psalmist. And others are prophets who are like, God said this, I got to tell you this word for word. 
but the word of God is Christ. How, do we, how does a young man keep his way pure? Well, by centering his life on Jesus, by keeping God's word. See, God's word reveals God to us, reveals our faith to us through the prophets, the apostles. But nothing is clearer to learn about God, to understand what God desires than to look at the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, centering our life on the word. Verse 10, the psalmist says, I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. You can see the tension. I seek you with everything I have. Please help me. Don't let go of me. I'm leaning into you, God, but I know I'm flawed. Don't ever let me slip away. You can see this tension back and forth as the psalmist writes. Verse 11, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against, that I may not sin against you. The value here is embedding God's word in our hearts so that our lives align with what God calls us to. So what is treasuring God's word in our hearts causing us? Well, the simple answer is transformation. That it causes us to become more like Christ or it causes us to be sanctified, to be made more as God created us to be. So what can we do to read and understand God's word more? How can we approach scripture in a way that we can understand more? Well, here's what the psalmist says, verse 12. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. The writer says, in order for, to learn about God's word, we seek God to have him teach us his word. Seems simple enough, right? If you want to know something, well, I, I wrote a book, I published a book, I don't know, four, four or five years ago. Well, if you want to know what I meant somewhere and maybe in a place where I was unclear, it would be logical to come say, hey, Jeff, what were you aiming for right here? I don't get it. And really, that's what the psalmist does. He says, in order to learn God's word, we seek God. We seek God's word. We seek God to learn God's word. There's two terms we typically use. Bible reading and Bible study. And when I hear Bible reading, and what I see often in the church is Bible reading is this very cursory kind of quick overview. You read through something as if you're reading a newspaper, a blog post, a novel, whatever. And then there's Bible study. So if that's Bible reading, then there's Bible study. And often Bible study is this deeper, more academic approach with outside resources and tools. And both of those are okay. Reading scripture, I remember before beginning uh, my series on Revelation, uh, which we're going to put on hold because I'm going to have surgery. Uh, by the way, thank you for your prayers. I'm having a, a two-level fusion a week from Monday, and I will be in one of those crazy hard collars for three months. Uh, and the risk is, uh, there's a lot of risks, obviously, but one is losing my voice. That's the one I'm really asking uh, for your prayers. Not only do I pastor a church, I teach Bible in the morning uh, for about an hour every morning at Valley Christian uh, to high school students. Um, obviously, discipleship and Bible study and all those things 
as I think about them, how important my voice becomes. And I don't care if it sounds crazy, a little gravelly, a little whatever. I just want to be able to communicate so that I can continue to do what God has called me to do and proclaim his word to others. So thank you for your prayers. So Bible reading, this cursory thing I was saying before I began the series in, in Revelation, what I do is just read Revelation. I just read through the whole book. I want to see the whole landscape. I've taught it before, but I just want to read it all together. That's Bible reading, right? But then I do Bible study, if you will, as I, pre, as, as I prepare to give an expository gospel-centered message on a Sunday, but somewhere in between those two, there's also something that God teaches us. And, and sometimes we forget to go to God's word to figure out how has God called us to read his word. And the psalmist just says that, Lord, may you be blessed. Would you teach me your statutes? Would you teach me your word? And so God's word gives us ways or things to practice, to do, to live in, to learn God's word better. I want to show you a few of them. So verse 13, the psalmist says, with my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. The psalmist is proclaiming or declaring or speaking out loud God's word. Reading scripture out loud is a powerful way to add to your learning and studying of scripture. Reading scripture audibly to yourself or to your family those of you that have families with your children, in a study, in a, in a small group, in a church setting, reading out loud and reading along. I tried to follow along in the liturgy today and turn to Colossians. I want to hear it read. I want to see it on paper. I'm not second guessing that he's reading something different. I just want to hear it and I want to read it simultaneously. It sticks better. There's a huge increase in focus in the reader and the hearer. There's an increase in retention when you both hear the word and read the word simultaneously. I have a men's group that meets at 5.30 every Tuesday morning. I know PJ just said, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> PJ does stuff late at night, and I'm like, I'm an old man. I don't want to do that, you know, but I'm early. I'm good. But we meet together at 5.30 in the morning. We do inductive Bible study together. And every single week, we begin with one, two, or three men reading the passage as we read along. So audibly reading it to us as we read right back to back. It's like reading the passage, and then the next person who's going to read reads the same passage. We do that two or three times to hear the word as we read the word. He says, with my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. Judgments are not like we think of judgments, like on the other side of something, you get a judgment. He's talking about God's judgments of what's right and wrong up front. We proclaim those. We, I say it out loud, the psalmist says. Verse 14, I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. Listen, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. He said, I will hide your word in my heart. He said, I will not forget your word. Remember, he is one and his desires. I will retain what you have said, God. I will proclaim it out loud. And now he says, I will meditate. 
The CSB actually translates the same words sometimes meditate and in some settings think about. We'll see that in just a few verses. That word for meditate is used nine times in Psalm 119. Nine times the author uses the concept of you meditating on Scripture. Now here's an image. When you get ready to make tea, a lot of you probably drink hot tea. I like hot tea. Now I'm a coffee guy, but I like hot tea. And when you get there, you make this hot water, right? You got your water already. You've got your tea. And, and what you don't do is go, right? Like you, you just can't just stick it in there for a second and then pull it back out, right? You may get a little color. You may be able to get a little aroma, but you don't have tea. See, what, what it takes is for that tea to steep in the hot water, right? For it to sit in the water and, and so that it can absorb what it is to absorb. And that's when the color and the aroma and the flavor come out. See, meditating on God's word is that. It's, it's that steeping in. It's that spending time in God's word. Sometimes Bible reading is like that speedboat crossing the lake really quickly. And there's a lot, there's, there's joy in that. It's fun to take a boat really quickly across water. It's enjoyable. But meditating on scripture is more that glass bottom boat where you wait until everything is still, where things are quiet. And the longer you remain, the further down you can see as everything settles you're able to take in the nuances, the details, the things that you can't see when you go so quickly. And again, there's a place for Bible reading. There's a place for reading something in one setting. There absolutely is. And there's a place for academic study. There is. Outside resources, tools, helps, others. Great. But the psalmist is talking about something that we just sit in the word and meditate. So if you're a note taker, here's some meditating on scripture ideas. Just ask you what's going on in the passage. Who's talking? Who, who's being spoken to? What is the obvious or explicit meaning of the text? Are there any implicit or less obvious teachings in the text? What is the overall point the author is trying to make? You can ask author lowercase a, the writer. You can ask what is the author God trying to say here. I always challenge the guys when we're done spending time in scripture, can you summarize it? Not all the details. Can you summarize it in a brief sentence? Right, when, you get a, when you get a handle on it, once you've meditated in it, you kind of get an idea of what's going on. So, uh, verse 17, he writes, deal generously with your servant so that I might live, then I will keep your word. Open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. There's two things here. I want to separate them. I want to do one. We'll reread it and do another. But here's what he says. Open my eyes that I, might that I may contemplate wondrous things. Open my eyes, God. Open my eyes as I look to Scripture. And so not only is he saying open my eyes, but what he's doing is he's praying. The author of the psalm is praying, God, open my eyes that I might see what you're saying here. 
we sang a song that was beautifully paired with what we would call a prayer of illumination. Right? That prayer that we would be able to see that God would illumine Scripture, shine a light on. John 1, that same passage, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, also calls Jesus the light who came into the world and no one recognized him. Psalm 19 will go on to say, your word is a lamp unto my feet. That prayer of illumination is that. Will you shine a light on your truth, God? And so he prays, the author prays in scripture. Again, if you're a note taker, let me say this to you. Pray more while reading the Bible. It may sound super obvious. Pray more while reading the Bible. Studying scripture should be a lot less monologue and a lot more dialogue. It's kind of the opposite of prayer, right? As we go to prayer, oftentimes we talk a lot and don't listen. Scripture, sometimes we're listening for God, but we're not talking to God as well. Make your time in scripture more dialogue than monologue. Commune with God in that time. And the psalmist says, open my eyes. And then he says this. So I'm going to reread it. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I might contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. The word contemplate there. Think deeply about. Contemplate. If meditation is to immerse yourself, to meditate on the text, if that's to immerse yourself in the text, contemplation is about asking question of the text itself. Let me give you some examples. When you contemplate scripture, maybe you ask, what does this reveal inside of me? What has God said to me as I prayed through it? Does this reveal idolatry or sin in my life? How is my need for Christ revealed in this passage? I love that you speak openly about giving, about our responsibility and duty and also our joy in it. The thing that stands between a lot of Christians uh, and, their, and giving is often idolatry. It means sacrificing something I like. It means I can't go through the Starbucks drive through every morning on my way because that will cut into what God has called me, commanded me, taught me to give. Now, giving is an area I actually love, I enjoy. That I know that every breath I take was given to me by God. I won't go deeply into this. It's, it's a sidetrack from the message. But I didn't grow up in the church. I came to faith much later. I came to faith in a jail cell waiting to go back to prison. I'd been out about 90 days. I was in and out and in and out, and I'll be honest with you, I was more comfortable in. I understood what life inside meant. I didn't understand life on the streets. And so I was never out very long. And I was looking through a cell window and I was looking out. And I saw some men, and, and when, you're, when you're who I was at the time, Everybody in the tank that you're in, everybody that's in the, in the place that you are is going to prison. Some of them, most of them, never getting out. And that was the risk for me, of never getting out. 
And I'm looking through this window, and we're all in the same place. We're all in this, this cubicle, this tank, this, this uh, area full of cells, and we're all going to the same place. And yet I saw these guys at a table, and they were joyful. They were happy. They were blessed. And they were studying Scripture together. And the affiliations and things that I had didn't really allow me to engage with them but what I did was I looked through that window and I prayed. Okay, God, you said you could fix me. If you fix me, I'll never leave you. Now, if you told me at that moment I'd be standing here today, I'd laugh at you. I didn't know I was ever getting out, but I was committed to the fact that I was all jacked up and broken inside. And that I was not ever going to change apart from something greater than me, transforming me. I left that day with a long battle with addiction, never used again, with a long struggle with things that all went away, some slowly, but eventually I got out. I had to marry my high school sweetheart. We reconnected while I was in, and as I paroled on a Sunday morning, I was in church with her on a Sunday night. A couple years later, a pastor asked, if you could do anything you want to do, if you had all the time and the money in the world, which I didn't have either one, but if you did, what would get you out of bed in the morning? What would excite you enough to get you out of bed in the morning? And I said, man, I would teach God's word to other people. This is what changed my life. PJ's been in my office. We, I have a, a paperback Bible that I wore the covers off of so many times. I keep taping it back together. That was my Bible in prison. And that God's word changed my life so much that I'd want to pass that on. When I said teach others, I didn't think this. I just meant I wanted to pass on what had been so transforming for me. So back to the passage, contemplating. What does this reveal inside of me? What has God said to me as I prayed to him through this passage? Does this reveal idolatry or sin in my life? How is my need for Christ revealed in this passage? That's contemplation. Verse 19, he says, I am a resident alien on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. We hear the word alien, and the way it's used most commonly to us today evokes some feelings. It's deeply political. It's all these things. But it reminds me of, of two groups of people today. And the first one is this. Maybe you feel like an outsider from God's family. Maybe you're here, and you would not say that the thing I get up and do every day is put Jesus first. Maybe you're hearing the gospel for the first time. Maybe you're here for the first time. Let me just say, welcome. I'm here for the first time too. I'm glad you're here. If that's you, and you hear this blessing of God's word and the transformation, if you hear that and you're, you're like, okay, how, how do I do that? That's the very question that the people who stood and shouted for Jesus' crucifixion, that's the very question they asked just days, weeks later. 
as after Jesus ascended and the church looked a lot like this, about 120 people gathered together in a room were praying and the spirit fell upon them and the people outside the room heard them proclaiming the goodness of God, the gospel of Jesus. And those very people who had just days prior shouted for the crucifixion of Jesus said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter answered, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. He says, promises for you and for your children, for those who come after you all to the reaches of the world. Repent is to turn and face God. That's the English word, repent, is a military term that you would see an army battling and a general on a hill, and when they're losing the battle and there's no way they can win, the, the general would yell, repent, repent, and it meant turn around, run for your life. And that's really the call for us, is to turn from where we've been and run towards Jesus. One of the songs we sang earlier referenced the words of the the father and his two sons and the, the younger son returns and the father runs and, and embraces him. Run, let God embrace you. The Greek for, for repent, the one is used in, in Acts 2, metanoia, means to change your mind, to have a new mindset. It's, it fits here really well. Let, let God's word shape your mind. But if you hear, I'm a resident alien on earth, do not hide your commands from me. Verse 19, if you hear that and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, if you hear that verse that says, I'm a resident alien on earth, and you understand you're a part of God's family, but you feel very comfortable in this world, this verse is for you. You see, we are to know that we don't belong here. We are to know that this is not our home that we're a part of Christ's kingdom, but we are resident aliens on earth. Jesus says it this way in John 17. He says, I've given them your word. The world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm, I'm praying that you take them out of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, Jesus says, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, I have also sent them into the world. So if you hear resident alien and what you hear is I'm outside the family of God, I would say repent. Turn to the family of God. Turn to Jesus. Speak to one of the pastors here, PJ or, or Peter. Speak to one of the people that spoke up here today. Ask them how to follow Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been walking with Jesus for some time, and you feel at home here in this world, I would encourage you, hear this verse as a challenge, a call to repentance, that this is not your home, that we belong to a kingdom that is eternal, and this world is fading fast. The psalmist goes on, verse 20. He says, I am continually overcome with longing for your judgments. You rebuke the arrogant, the ones under a curse who wander from your commands. This is a lesson we can learn about teaching our children. When we teach our children when they've done something wrong and we correct them, 
Are we correcting their behavior or are we dealing with their sin? Right when, they, when a child lies, you don't have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You have to teach them to share. See, we're born broken. We're born in sin. We're born enemies of God. We're born a mess in need of a Savior. And as you parents, followers of Jesus, train your children up, don't miss the moment to speak gospel into your parenting. Don't miss the time to teach them that they sin because they're a sinner, not sinning makes them a sinner, right? That they're born that way and that, that Jesus is the answer and that behavior changes because our belief in Jesus changes and transforms us. At Generations, we often say we don't have behavior problems, we have belief problems. That if we believed what God said, it would change our behavior. Verse 22, he says, take insult and contempt away from me, for I have kept your decrees. Though princes sit together speaking against me, your servant will think. There's that word, meditate again. Same word, just translated into think. Your servant will think about your statutes. Your decrees are my delight and my counselors. He says, your servant will think about your statutes. We'll spend time on, we will dive into what you have said. Now, there's a repeated use of four terms. There's a lot of reading out loud, proclaiming, if you will. There's a lot of meditating or thinking deeply about. There's a lot of prayer about God revealing his word. And there's a lot of contemplation in his word. Read, meditate, pray, contemplate. The church for roughly 2,000 years, since the second century, has had a term for that, Lectio Divina. It's Latin for divine reading. How to read God's word. And it talks about reading out loud, proclaiming, meditating on, praying through, contemplating how it affects and teaches and guides and corrects us. Hundreds and hundreds of years. It even had a resurgence with John Calvin and the Reformation. Somehow it gets lost after a generation or generation. But reading, meditating, praying, contemplating. Just going to cover a couple of verses really quickly for a variety of applications. Verse 25, my life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. When we are suffering, turn to God's word for comfort, for life. Verse 26, I told you about my life and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. Again, the use of meditate. And yet this is a prayer. God, teach me the meaning. Help me understand what you have said. Verse 28, I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. There are you, those of you who are grieving. Uh, the loss of an unborn child. May the loss of a loved one around holidays. Grief. I am weary from grief, he writes. Strengthen me through your word. Do you cling to God's word in your weakness and your pain? Verse 29. Keep me, the way, keep me from the way of deceit and graciously give me your instruction. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinances before me. Listen to where, where he kind of lands here. I have chosen, verse 30, the way of truth. 
I have set your ordinances before me. Verse 31, I cling to your decrees, Lord. Do not put me to shame. I pursue the way of your commands, for you broaden my understanding. Instruction and the ordinances, decrees, the commands, this show him striving towards obedience. How different is the psalmist's words here than in the earlier statement where he said, if only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes. Now it's, I've set your ordinances before me. I cling to your decrees. I pursue the way of your commands. This is the transformation found in the gospel. This is the transformation that Jesus gives us that Jesus accomplishes for us, that God has ordained us to, that Jesus has achieved for us and the Holy Spirit applies to us. That huge difference from verse 5 all the way here to verse 30, 31, 32. Oh, if only I could be committed to you. To I am committed to you. I pursue you. I follow you. I strive for you. And I'll close with a verse that we used earlier. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The transformation of the gospel is this. That God takes your hard heart, your heart of stone out, that God gives you spiritual life, a heart that can beat for him. That God gives you his spirit. That's the very promise of ba- baptism in Acts 2.38 we read earlier. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then God says, I will cause you to be obedient. I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. I will do the work, God says. You don't come to faith in Jesus and then white-knuckle it until the end. You don't come to faith and then struggle and struggle and struggle in your own strength. You, you come to faith and it's a life of submission to the spirit within. It's a life of learning what has God said and called us to. And how do I surrender myself to that? It is Christ's work within you. It's the Holy Spirit empowering you. It's not you. The good news is, it's not you. I wouldn't make it. But Christ in me secures my future. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are the word that became flesh. You are the very God who became like us. You express God to us. You reveal God. You are Lord, you are Savior. You are the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. You are the light that shines in the darkness. You lead our way to God. You give us all that we need. You provide the power to be transformed. You do the work we learn to surrender to you. We surrender by learning your word. What have you called us to, as the psalmist writes, learning to observe the statutes, to be be obedient to you. We strive to know you in your word. We read your word. We read it out loud. We pray through it. We meditate on it. We contemplate how it calls us to change.
Teach us this year, 2023, to begin this year reading more deeply in Scripture that we might know your way. If we are outside of Christ, outside of the family of God, let your word reveal a need for conversion. If we are in Christ and we are, we are marginal or phoning it in, let your word call us to more. If we've been walking with Jesus for decades and think we've got it all handled, let your word remind us that we are never completed. Not until the day we stand before you, which is secure in you, but our calling remains here. Let us be a light to the world. And by our faith, might we reveal you to others. Christ Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.